And as in our reading, it is a good thing that we have God's grace to overcome sin after sin. We are in Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is a chapter that causes most people to ask, why is this here? It seems to break up the story of Joseph as we're moving through this life of Joseph and looking at God working through the life of Joseph. We suddenly encounter something here where the end of chapter 37, we read that Joseph is left in Egypt. And you can imagine the reader wants to know, well, what happens next? But rather than telling us what happens next, the a lens of the story shifts now to another son of Jacob. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because perhaps the intention is not the story of Joseph, but really the story of the sons of Jacob as chapter 37 and verse 2 began all of this with, these are the generations of Jacob. And the rest of the book is about these sons and what they're doing. And we started off with what the sons were doing toward Joseph. And now we move to another son and we look at Judah. This is probably one of the most unseemly events in the scriptures. Certainly top five. So unseemly, I'm going to have to downplay it a ton. And I'm going to let you please go read it this afternoon of how bad Judah is. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob. If you remember in chapter 37, we saw Judah is already on the negative list of sorts. Remember, he's the one that says, you know what? Instead of just killing our brother, we could make money off of him. Unless what we sell him to these Ishmaelites that are passing by. Because, I mean, we might as well make a profit off of him. So he's already an A-plus character that we've already seen in chapter 37. Chapter 38 now spends more time speaking about how wicked Judah is. Verse 1 tells us in Genesis 38 that Judah leaves his family and he goes to a Canaanite city, uh, Adullam, and he finds a, a woman there and marries her and has three sons. That already tells us that Judah is rejecting the covenant that God had given to Abraham. If you remember, when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham made it very clear to his son Isaac that you are not to marry any of the people of the land. And so he sends one of his servants to Haran to be able to avoid that. And then Isaac does the same thing and instructs Jacob, you're not to marry anybody in the land. And Judah doesn't do that. Judah decides to leave his family, rejects that covenant, rejects the land that they're living in, goes into Canaan, finds a woman, a Canaanite woman, and has three children with her. We also learn that Judah didn't impart that information to his children because we're told also in verse 6 that his son Ur, his oldest one, he takes a wife in the land as well. And her name is Tamar. I know that we're given about how Judah is doing in this family. This probably summed up really well in verse 7. Verse 7 says that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. That's the first time we've read about that in the scriptures up to this point. And it's not like God does that on every page of the scriptures either. 
All that we are given is clearly Ur is doing something so horrific, so abominable, so outrageous, that God just simply says, it's so wicked, I'm going to kill him. And so God kills Ur, and that leaves Tamar a widower. Ancient Near Eastern law and culture said it would be the next son in line, the brother of her, that would now go and marry her. When we get to the law of Moses, we'll see even God enact that to Israel, that if the son, if the, if the uh, father died or the husband died, then the next brother would then marry her because there's no social security, there's no way to provide for, there's not a job you're going to go get and take care of yourself. You need to marry the next one, the next brother, so that you can be provided for, have a child so the child can take care of you throughout your days. And so Onan is the next son, and he rejects doing that. He decides he's not going to do that. He's not going to marry her. And so he commits sin pretty wickedly with her in verse 9. And so verse 10 says that God killed him too. So this is a great family so far. Sin upon sin. So much so that God has killed two sons. All that's left for Judah is his youngest son, Shelah. And Judah is afraid that Shelah is not any better than the other two and God's going to kill him also. And so rather than allow Shelah to marry Tamar, Judah says to Tamar, wait till he's older and then I'll let you marry him and you'll be taken care of. And so we're told that Tamar lives in her father's house for who knows how long. And it seems for Judah, it's a matter of out of sight, out of mind. Daughter-in-law, don't care. She's quiet. She's in her father's house. And some time passes by. And so we're told then, and we get the picture, Judah is not only a covenant breaker and not only sold his brother into slavery, he's also a liar who says to his daughter-in-law, yes, you can have my youngest son, and then never fulfills that promise. Which leads to matters to be worse upon worse. So, in finding this out and learning that Judah is never going to give Shelah over to Tamar, Tamar's father says, Judah's on a road trip. And Tamar says, oh, well, I know what Judah does on road trips. I'm going to dress up as a prostitute, and that way I'm going to be able to have the child that I need. We learned in the story that Judah is also a fornicator. If you read the story carefully, she does not have to seduce him. He is looking for that, and that's what he does. And so she says, well, what is the payment going to be? And he says, I'll give you one of my flock. And she says, well, I need collateral for that. And so it's going to be my staff and my signet ring and all these different items. For us, it would be basically the idea of like leaving your driver's license. This would be to prove of who you are. And so this is the collateral that's given. And so Judah then goes into her and then leaves. And he sends one of his servants to go and give this animal as payment. But she's not there anymore. She's gone back to her father's house, dressed as a widow. And there she is. And Judah's looking high and low for this one. And of course, can't really make an official announcement of, hey, can somebody find the prostitute that I was with to pay this person off? She just lets it go. And so Judah says, uh, Three months go by, and Tamar's found pregnant. 
And the people of the town say, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. You need to do something about that. And Judah, with all of his great honesty and righteousness, says, that's right. She's been sexually immoral, so let's burn her. And so Tamar says, well, fair enough. But let me tell you the person who did this so that they can also be condemned. The person who owns this staff and this cord and this signet ring is the one that also was with me in that. <laughs> and Judah goes, oh, well, those are mine. That'd be like producing a driver's license. Well, whose are these? Uh, they were definitely Judah's and none other. And Judah then recognizes he has done wrong. He was supposed to give Shelah to Tamar. Tamar has taken matters into her own hands. And so she is spared from the death of sexual immorality. She bears two sons. They're twins. Uh, Perez is one of the names. That's important to keep in mind as the story goes forward. And the story just ends like that. There you go. And I want us to recognize when you read Genesis 38, there's absolutely nothing good in the story. You don't read this and go, well, we all should be like, (laughs) there's no, hey, there's some great moral, nope. Everybody in the chapter is filthy, wicked. Nobody's done right. Nobody's done good. Judah is a mess. Judah here is a liar, a covenant breaker, a fornicator, and one who sells his brother for money. And Tamar is willing to play the role of a prostitute. And so you read this and you go, this family is a total disaster. Things do not look good for the covenant promises of God. We've already read about Reuben is a mess. We talked about Reuben. He's gone into his father's concubine. The only one that we remotely have seen of Jacob's sons to be faithful is all the way down in Egypt. And we read now the rest of the brothers and we just get this picture that everything is a total sinful, wicked mess. What does God want us to learn from Genesis 38? Or to perhaps to put it a little more pointedly, why is this here? (laughs) Why is this here? What are we supposed to do with this? I have many scholars that I have read that says, this doesn't even belong. They want to throw the whole thing out and say, well, it interrupts the story of Joseph. It's just a mess. It was just kind of thrown in there. And so we should just go on to chapter 39. And I won't even begin to tell you how many commentaries I have that do that very thing. Follow the story of Joseph. Skip chapter 38. Go to chapter 39. Because this is an unseemly mess. It's disgusting. It's awful. And yet here it is, recorded for all time by God's will. And I think there are many messages, but one message that we're going to look mainly at this very morning is that the message is how God is able to overcome your own sins. We saw in chapter 37 a great message of how God is able to overcome Other people's sins. When people sin against you. We've seen the life of Joseph. And we've seen in chapter 37 all that his brothers did against him. And we learned some great powerful thoughts and messages about how God can be with us even in the face of that adversity. 
But now we stand before this scene of people who are completely unrighteous, full of sin and full of wickedness and brought before our eyes. Is God communicating to us that he has the power to overcome our sins? One of the things that I want us to truly consider as we think about what God might be doing with this message is to consider the power of being confronted by our sins. The power of being confronted by our sins to allow sin to have a working within us, to confront us, to humble us and to change us. And the reason why that bubbles to the top right here is because this seems to be a defining moment in Judah's life. Up to this point, we are reading of years of wickedness out of Judah. We haven't read anything redeeming about his life at this point. But the next time we read about Judah, we will. This seems to become a defining, changing moment for Judah. That now he's going to behave differently. Next time we read about him, he's back with his family. Interesting. We're going to read about him caring for his brothers, willing to give his life. We are going to see a radically changed Judah from what we have read of a deplorable Judah in this chapter. And I want us to consider how there is power in allowing our sinfulness to confront our hearts in such a way so that it will cause us to change. And I want us to consider that there's a purpose to that. Why is it that God made it so that we would have earthly consequences for our decisions in this life? You know, God did not have to order the universe that way. He could have just made it like a credit card. You know what? Do whatever you want to do. You won't pay any consequences till the very end. Then the bill will come due. And you don't pay for anything in this life. And you won't feel the consequences at all. But I'm just giving you a warning. One day down the road, there's going to be eternal punishment. So if you're not going to follow me, you better live it up because you're going to get it in the end. But that's not what God does. God does make consequences for sin now. Why did God do that? What is God trying to accomplish through that? That we do have to feel guilt and deal with our sins and deal with punishment and deal with judgment even now. And I submit to you the main thing is that God uses this to turn our lives. That we encounter our sins, that we recognize our sins, and it becomes a moment by which we recognize we need to turn to God. This life of sin is not working. And this seems to be a defining moment for Judah. Everything seems to change for him when he is confronted by this sin before all the people and says, well, you're the one. You're the one who's engaged in the sexual morality. And that seems to now put him on a different track. I was trying to think of all the variety of New Testament scriptures I could I could use. I decided to pick one in Revelation just because I thought it just said it so well. Here is God 
describing judgments against a nation, against a people. It's not the final judgment. But notice the language that's there in Revelation 16, verse 8. It says there, the fourth angel pulled, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In chapter 9, God will say the same thing of Revelation. Here are these punishments coming out. And what do the people do in the face of their sins? Do they decide to turn back to God? Do they decide to repent of their sins? Do they recognize there is a God and I need to change how I'm living and what I'm doing is wrong? No, it says they curse God and continue to do what they want to do. And that's not the purpose of the consequence of sin. And so often we see that is that we continue in sin in the face of the very consequences that stand before us And don't recognize that this should be a guidepost, a warning sign. So it says, you know what? This isn't working. This life of sin, this direction of following your desires and doing what sounds good to you will not work. Look at the consequences that you are paying. Look at the pain that you are in. Look at the suffering that you are dealing with. And so often... What we see is like in Revelation, the words, but we don't repent. And we just keep plowing deeper into sin. And Judah's consequences are brought to bear upon him and it seems to have had a moment with him. And there is an allowing of those sins to confront him, to work on him. And it is something that is important for us to do. It is important for us to allow our failures and weaknesses and sins to allow them to confront us. We are excellent excusers of ourselves. The reason I sinned is because of what somebody else did. It's all their fault. And if they hadn't have done what they did, I wouldn't be such a sinner. But they said that, and they did this, and they did all of those things, and so I'm just totally off the hook. I have my excuse. And if we can decide to do that, we're going to stay in the sins we're committing. Here we are as Christians saying, you know, I want to do what's right. But at the same time, excusing the very behavior that we're engaged in. There's no excuse. I think that's what I like, if there's anything to like about Genesis 38, is that there's no excuse. Nobody has an excuse for their behavior in this. This is a total mess, which is what sin is. There's no excuse. You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame your children. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your friends. And you can't blame your co-workers. You can't blame the church or all the hypocrites. The sin is with you. And that's the reality of what we have to come in front of and come to face with. 
There's no excuse for our sins. What we have done is because we chose to do it and we desired to do it. That's what James 1 says. We are lured and enticed and drawn away by our own desires. And so we have to own that. We have to confront that. Otherwise, there will never be any victory over these temptations and sins. Confront those sins and confess those sins to God. Why are we afraid of that? Or am I the only one? I almost have to, like, God doesn't know what I did. If I just keep quiet and don't confess these things to God, He won't ever know the things that I've done today. So I'll just keep it all in the closet and God will never know, right? It's the most ridiculous thinking. He already knows. He knows exactly what you did yesterday and last week and last month and last year. He knows everything that's going on. So confront the sin. Confess the sin. I like that Judah does not go, well, you know, that really wasn't me. You know, anybody can make a duplicate of a staff and a signet ring and it wasn't really me. He just goes, you know what? Yep. Sinner right here. He doesn't come up with excuses. Well, I was afraid God was going to kill my youngest one. I have no more. He doesn't. I'm glad he doesn't do it. Just confess. Yep. Got me. Yep. We need much more of that raw honesty with God. God knows what we've done. God knows our lives. God knows our sins. And I submit to you the change will absolutely be impossible we keep denying and excusing it if we refuse to confront it it is taking those sins to god that becomes a massive tool for turning our lives to god that's why i believe god said confess your sins why do you think god said we need to pray to god and confess our sins to him why do that do you think that god didn't know what we did is that why he needs us to confess no So why does he tell us to do that? Why does he say that you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Why does God need that? He doesn't need it. So what is it on our end? I submit to you, it's the only way change begins. Is to be honest with sin. To let it confront the heart. To let it confront our mind and see it before our eyes. And to take that sorrowfully and repentantly to God. To own those sins and tell God, I have sinned. I've done this. And I think there's a lot of power in the changed life to be detailed to God. I think I fail that sometimes perhaps you do as well. Where it's just like, you know, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Good night. That's too easy. That doesn't express the gravity of how sin is a total abomination before God. And doesn't express the gravity, the weightiness of how this is a total affront to the character and love and mercy of God. There needs to be an accountability to God. To take these sins to God. Here's what I did. Own that. Confess it. 
so that we can begin to make changes and recognize and say out loud to God, here's all the things that I've done wrong. Here's the things that I'm messing up on. Here's where I'm coming up short. And the more that I'm willing to put that before my face, it reminds me of where I need to change. It reminds me of what needs to be completely renovated and overhauled in my life. And so take your sins to God. If you have a greed problem, confront it. Tell God about it. Tell him, I've got my heart my heart tied to this world. I'm consumed by things. I need to change. If it's bitterness and malice toward people, take that to God. I just have this darkness of heart, God. I can't even think of good things. I have to speak evil of other people and slander them. And I have malicious intent toward them. God, I've got a problem. Help me in this. Pride. I think too much of myself. I act like the world revolves around me. Take these things to God. Confront it. Confess it. Make the necessary steps to be changed by the power of God and his word. Which leads to the second thing that I think is staggering about Genesis 38 and really where all of this goes in the scriptures. Is that it is never too late for us to turn our lives back to God. And that is shocking to me. It is shocking to me that it is possible for there to be a radical life change to take place. That you can read something like chapter 38 and think there's absolutely nothing good about this in the slightest. Nothing can come out of this. This is sin, wickedness, and filthiness. which should just be buried in the history of wicked people never to rise again. But what is staggering is what God did with these two people. It is staggering to me what God does with Judah. With Judah, he is going to be the one. He is going to be the patriarch through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God could have looked at Judah and said, you're a filthy disaster. It's going to go through Joseph. Joseph is better. Joseph is more righteous. Joseph is more faithful. Why doesn't God do that? He could have looked at all those sons and said, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess. Joseph, he's seeming pretty good. Let's go with Joseph. And we read the most heinous, horrible things about Judah and God goes, yeah, I'll use you. And that blows my mind. That God can do that. That God can take filthy, wicked sinners and accomplishes his purpose. All the kings of God were supposed to come through the descendants of Judah. And most importantly, one day down the line from Judah is going to come Jesus. From Judah. Staggering. In fact, Jesus is going to come from this very event. The most despicable, abominable record In the Old Testament, Jesus will come through this. It is a reminder to us that God is able to take miserably sinful people 
and accomplish his purpose. That it's not too late. That radical life change can happen. That you can have an overwhelming amount of sins. You can feel like you're swimming in the most horrible of sins. And you can sit there and go, you have no idea the sins that I've committed. Okay. Go read Genesis 38 and see where you are on the board. Because it's bad. You know, sometimes we like to think like we're just so much worse than everybody else. Alright, go read Genesis 38 and see if you feel that way. Goodness. It's just gross. And God says, I can still use that. I can still use that. Tamar no better off, plays the role of a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law, scandalous actions. You would think all of this would want to be buried, right? What Tamar does, let's not record that. Let's not keep that in Scripture at all. But you would be surprised how often it comes back up. How about Ruth chapter 4? This blows my mind while we read at the end of Ruth. Here is Boaz and Ruth. They're going to get married. Boaz has got the pledge made that he's going to be the Redeemer for Ruth, and they're going to now be married. We're all set to go. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, speaking of Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. This is a blessing I want you to understand. May she be like Rachel and Leah. So here's the first blessing. Have lots of kids, just like Rachel and Leah. Great blessing. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and made your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You go, you're going to make Tamar part of the blessing? How is chapter 36 going to be anything of anything good? And yet that's exactly what happens. Is now the memory of Tamar and the memory of this event is now able to become a blessing. A blessing that is now placed upon Ruth and Boaz as God would use the house of Perez to be a predominant part of Israel. And then one step further, because you turn to Matthew chapter 1. And you didn't put women's name in genealogies. There's only four women's name in the genealogy of Jesus. And the first woman on the list is Tamar. And it says that Judah begat Perez by Tamar. You didn't have to put that in there. You could have covered that over and just said, Judah, Perez, and next, and next, and next. And he goes, no, 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 no. Don't forget Genesis 38. Judah begot Perez by Tamar. And it reminds us that God is able to take the wreckage of sin and bring about glorious purposes. And I want to emphasize that to you today. I have seen countless times, countless times, and I'm sure you have too, Where people's lives are completely wrecked by sin. Whether by their own decisions or the decisions of others. 
whether it be from a horrific upbringing and the parents were as sinful as could be and just wrecked children or rather acting just sinfully on their own and living their lives in total recklessness and ignoring the way of God. And I have seen countless lives be completely changed when they've given their lives fully to Christ. I can't... I I would recount them to you except it would take more time And since we put this on the internet, I don't want to embarrass them with names. It won't be fair. But I can name so many people across this country. Lives full of sin. Things like in Genesis 38. Who give their lives to Christ. And radical change happens. New lives are beginning. And all that was sinful and wicked in the past and all of the wreckage of the past now becomes a whole new life in Christ. And that only happens when you give your life fully to Him. That only happens through the power of God. That God is able to do that. That God can take the most serious of messes and change that. But it means that we have to stop going down the old path and going down our own way. I believe the record of Genesis would be completely different if this does not become a defining moment in the life of Judah. Everything changes concerning him now. Just wait till we get to the end and read the blessing that Jacob pronounces on him. Amazing. From where we see him at this moment. It can be radically changed. It's not too late to give your life to Christ. It's not too late to turn away from your sins. It's not too late to get your life right with God. It's not too late to experience the grace of God. It's not too late. God is able to overcome your sins. And may we always recognize the power of that grace. The power of of what God has accomplished through Christ on the cross, that your sins can be erased and all that wreckage can now be set aside. And it is such a glorious thing. Such a glorious thing to go forward with a whole new hope, a whole new way of life. A radically changed perspective. Because God has come into your life and changed who you are. Will you allow that to happen to you today? Will you be confronted by your sins? Will you recognize that your way of sin is not working? It is leading to devastation and suffering and pain. And to see that God's way is the way for life. That God can change your life and change your path. If you will give your life to Him, will you turn away from your sins? Confess Jesus as the Son of God and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you start there with God and let Him have His way with you and change your life and make you what you ought to be? Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?